Hello and welcome to Adrift in Melbourne, a three-part podcast series of City Walks recorded and produced by City of Melbourne Libraries. I'm Robin Anea and I'll be your host and guide. You may know me through my books of Melbourne history, like Bear Brass and A City Lost and Found, that's the one about Will and the Wrecker, or my latest book, Adrift in Melbourne, which takes the reader on seven walks through the city. Or maybe you've heard my podcast, Nothing on TV, where I weave stories out of old newspapers. My take on Melbourne history often draws more on the things that have gone than the things you can still see. So, tune in your mind's eye and let's go. First though, let me acknowledge with respect that this walking tour takes place on the traditional land of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the East Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. On this walk, called Off the Grid, we'll be encountering tales of love, death and go-karts on the fringes of Victoria Market. Our starting point is the City of Melbourne's pop-up library at 506 Elizabeth Street, opposite the Queen Vic Market Meat Hall. Sound good? Let's go then. Stop one. Now, here we are close to the corner of Elizabeth and Victoria Streets. Two things I want you to notice. First, the way the city grid ends at Victoria Street. The long straight line that's now Victoria Street originally marked the northern boundary of Robert Hoddle's 1837 survey, the Hoddle grid that gives the city its distinctive shape. The tilt of that grid was determined by the course of the Yarra River, but here the surveyor's boundary Set things straight compass-wise. Victoria Street runs east-west. The second thing to notice is that name, Victoria Street. The streets of Melbourne's main grid were already named just before Queen Victoria was crowned. If they hadn't been, you can bet one of the city's main streets, probably Collins or Burke, would instead be called Victoria You'd have to say there was a broken record quality to civic naming conventions during the long reign of Queen Victoria from 1837 right through to 1901. Victoria still ranks ninth among Australia's most common street names and this show of loyalty was especially manifest here in the capital of Victoria. In no part of the British Empire said the Mayor of Melbourne in 1881, is more loyal and devoted attachment entertained towards the throne and person of our most gracious sovereign than in this city, the capital of the colony, which is honoured with Her Majesty's name. Was this just toadyism? No, I don't think so. The adoration was mostly for real. Royalty, back then, was the apex of celebrity. The monarch-like a god you could put a face to. And so, Victoria. When plans to separate the Port Phillip district from New South Wales were being hammered out in London in 1847, the name proposed for the new colony was Victoria. The Melbourne press conceded it was a very pretty name, a right royal one, 
but they worried that with the abundance of places bearing that same imperial mark of favour, it was a very indifferent and distinguishing name. Within just a few years, the names of Victoria's goldfields, Ballarat, Bendigo, Mount Alexander, would be household words in even the remotest corners of Britain. Yet still, in 1862, the Melbourne Argus could gripe that the colony of Victoria itself was less known than Caribou and often was merged ignominiously under the umbrella term of Australia. This meant, of course, that the other colonies got credit for our glorious achievements. Here's some of what the Argus had to say on the subject. Among the youngest, we claim to be the most vigorous of England's offshoots. In proportion to our population, we are by far the richest community in the world. Among the colonies, we are the least burdensome of all to the mother country. Melbourne, our capital, has the metropolitan character in a marked degree. Compared to her, Sydney, Adelaide and Hobart Town are small and rather dull provincial towns. Yet, we are systematically neglected and passed over by the mother country. And the writer for the Argus reckoned he knew why. The egregious bad taste or flunkyism of the colony's framers had, he said, made Victoria the smith among nations. Lost in a profusion of Victoria's, our especial greatness went unknown. Now, I want you to cross Elizabeth Street with care. If the market's open, take the laneway beside the meat hall and on the way notice those happy farm animals above the entrance of the meat market, then cut through the deli section and the crowded H-shed. If it's not a market day, you're going to have to walk along Victoria Street instead, turning left into Queen Street when you get there. Whichever route you take, you want to end up on the footpath in Queen Street opposite D-shed. That's one of the sheds of the main market and you'll see the names A, B, C and so on painted above the end of each shed. Hit pause now and rejoin me once you're standing opposite D-Shed in Queen Street. Stop two. So here we're in the thick of things. In Queen Street, not far from Victoria Street, at the Queen Victoria Market. Something tells me she would have been amused. Now you can walk along as far as F-Shed while you're listening to this, if you like. You will notice that these market sheds follow the angle of Victoria Street, east-west, and Queen Street itself breaks with the city grid a block or two early, changing course to run north-south where it first reaches the market, which is interesting because these main market sheds stand on the site of Melbourne's old cemetery and, by tradition, Christian burials were aligned feet to the east, head to the west, to face the second coming. This was the town's main cemetery only for a few years from 1839 to 1853, but interments in family plots continue here right through to the 20th century. The cemetery ran all the way from Franklin Street at the far end of the market car park. At this end of the cemetery, the ground being unconsecrated was set aside for Aborigines and suicides. This was the part of the market uprooted in 1878 to make way for the sheds of what was then the new market. 
In its eagerness to relocate the wholesale vegetable market from the overcrowded eastern market near the top end of Burke Street, the Melbourne City Council claimed that the new market would occupy only an unused portion of the cemetery, but burials there in the unconsecrated section were unmarked, discoverable only by digging. Before any market sheds were built, the graves of 28 all but unknown persons would be exhumed and reinterred at the new cemetery, which of course is now the old Melbourne Cemetery at Carlton. At the far end of the market sheds D, E and F, several Jewish burials were allowed to remain and would become part of a chicken yard before being finally removed despite protests when the sheds were eventually extended. During the 1920s and 30s, the market would expand to take over the old cemetery in its entirety, displacing and erasing as many as 10,000 pioneer graves. Of those, only 914 were decorously relocated, meaning a great many burials were either left behind or carted away with the topsoil. Many, perhaps most, graves were unmarked since the old wooden headstones long ago would have been taken away for firewood. Though the cemetery had long been overgrown and neglected, many Melburnians deplored the idea of this desecration. Now, walk just past F Shed, then look back at the long red brick wall running the full length of that shed. That wall marks the extent of the original market sheds. Back in 1878, it was deemed objectionable only to have an iron railing between a busy market and a resting place for the dead. But you'll notice that the wall's inlaid with arches of a lighter coloured, originally white brick. Even though they're merely decorative, they were filled in from the start with solid red brick, those arches seem to hint, don't they, that the barrier between dead and living is a permeable one. It's not far to our next stop, near the market trolley hire, that's M Shed, just past Stringbean Alley and the public toilets. Hit pause now and play again when you get to Stringbean Alley. Stop three. You can keep walking while you're listening to this, just a short way past the sheds. Stop when you come to the John Batman Memorial in the market car park. In 1917, when plans were well advanced to clear out the cemetery and extend the market, a newspaper poet, and yes, there were such things, pictured a future scene where go-karts unfold, perambulators pass, converging where our pioneers were laid beneath the kindly covert of the grass. These go-karts and perambulators, they were what people used as shopping trolleys. A go-kart was usually just a crate with wheels and a broomstick handle, but right through until the 1940s, the market shopper's preferred beast of burden and battering ram was a roomy old pram, preferably minus the baby, because, as one observer wrote in 1903, babies being rather omnivorous creatures, many of them chew cabbage leaves, newspaper or carrots as they are trundled along, and when the perambulator bangs and jerks over the cobblestones, their head gives an answering wobble and, as likely as not, a piece of carrot jams in their throats. For the risk averse, there was always the basket or gunny sack, 
and later those string bags of miraculous capacity. Boys with billy carts for hire had a pitch down by the market gates on Elizabeth Street where they vied for the home delivery trade. After World War II, a campaign to reduce the housewife's burden was backed by doctors who warned of the dangers posed by shopping bag neuritis. At Victoria Market, one newspaper photographer found a potential victim, a young woman juggling baby, suitcase, bulging string bag and a bunch of gladioli. Now, home delivery by Billy Cart was one solution to shopping bag neuritis. Another was the compact two-wheeled mobile shopper, as they called them, pulled along by a handle. Better known by me, anyway, as a Jeep. It fit neatly in a car boot or the aisle of a tram. And by the late 70s, when I first shopped here, the Vic Market swarmed with them. Each one was armed with a blunt metal prong, the stand that kept the Jeep upright when stationary but which, on the move, stuck out behind. It was a lucky day at the market if you didn't gouge your shin on one of them. Now, if you're not already there, I want you to walk along the short distance to the John Batman Memorial in the market car park, just past the market sheds. Hit pause now if you need to, and then play again once you're there. Stop four. It was once said that no other city in Australia is so partial to gum leaves as Melbourne, and at Christmas that partiality amounts to a mania. A mania? For gum leaves? From its opening year, that was 1878, the Queen Vic market on Christmas Eve was thronged with shoppers before daybreak, getting in their provisions for Christmas Day. The Herald called it one of the greatest sights of the Southern Hemisphere. Live poultry had their feet tied with string that doubled as a handle to carry them by, but even more cumbersome and just as essential would be a monstrous sheaf of gum branches or fern fronds, the Melbourneian equivalent of a Christmas tree. To many thousands of dwellers in the city terraces, lanes and squares, said a writer in 1892, the Christmas market is the only opportunity of obtaining material for that bit of green garlanding which shall make the house gay. The mania began with the fad for fern gully tourism in the 1870s and it would last roughly 50 years. As late as 1921, fern fronds brought in by the cartload from the Dandenongs and beyond sold for sixpence a dozen at the Christmas market. In every tram car that passed the markets, said a report in The Age, the passengers were tickled under the chin with fern fronds and gum leaves. Few bystanders, at the sight of all these ambulating shrubberies, could resist the temptation to invoke Burnham Wood and Dunsinane. But even in the early years, some were aghast at the massacre of our forests and this wholesale destruction of beauty spots, just to garnish the city at Christmas time. Up until the 1920s, there was something like a forest right here next to the market. When the cemetery was first laid out, several stately old gums had been left standing. Removing their huge stumps was beyond the means of horsepower anyway, so why not keep the trees for shade? Graves nestled round them, even though those roots must have made hard work of grave digging. 
But after the cemetery was superseded in the 1850s, most of the trees fell victim to the firewood demands of the growing city. Just one ancient tree, as dead as anything there, seems to have been allowed to remain as a kind of monument. It stood not far from here, on the Queen Street boundary of the cemetery. Legend was that the huge old red gum had already been dead when Melbourne was founded and had served as a landmark to those venturing into the wilds beyond the early township. Well into the 1880s, it still stood out stark on the skyline here. At some point, even that last surviving tree was gone. But a species of rogue scrub, self-sown wattles and tea trees with lesser shrubs and lots of weeds, made the untended cemetery grounds a wild counterpoint to the manicured Flagstaff Gardens nearby. Local kids loved this no-man's land, this scrap of urban bush. On Sundays, you'd see them carrying home arms full of wattle blossom and greenery in rehearsal for the Christmas market. Now let's turn to face the other side of Queen Street, directly opposite the Batman Monument. Ongoing building works make it tricky to pinpoint an address or landmark just here. So much is changing so fast, but the spot we're looking for roughly corresponds with the driveway beside a boxy new building that's keyed in the colours of red and white, so fix your eyes on that. Stop five. On this spot used to stand a rather grand boom-time mansion, two storeys high, triple-fronted with bay windows, columns flanking the entrance and concrete urns all along the parapet. It was built in 1894 by the Holtz, Annie and James, as headquarters of their matrimonial agency. For an upfront fee of a guinea, that's 21 shillings, the agency promised to find life partners for men and women from all walks of life. If an introduction should lead to marriage, the Holtz would be rewarded with, say, a fortnight's wages from a working man or, in the case of better-off clients, a percentage of the happy couple's combined fortune. There must have been money in marriage broking because the Holtz were able to shell out for this fancy matrimonial chambers at a time when the rest of Melbourne was mired in the depression of the 1890s. Annie Holt had started in the marriage business around 1886. Before that, she had run an agency that supplied people with servants and she'd noticed how a widower would often marry the housekeeper she found for him. Annie herself came from a broken home with a ne'er-do-well father who threw his wife and children into the street, then shirked on paying maintenance. In James Holt, Annie reckoned she had found the best husband in the world. In the early 1890s, the Holts had a windfall. A grateful client granted them title to a property she'd inherited in India, on the strength of which they were able to build their palatial premises on this spot. Now, opposite the cemetery may not sound like a felicitous locale, but for 15 years or more that phrase appeared daily in newspaper adverts for Holt's matrimonial agency. Up to 1905, the agency claimed credit for more than 15,000 marriages, many of them held right here on the premises, 
You see, in addition to being a matchmaking service, Holtz Matrimonial Agency operated as Melbourne's Gretna Green. The Holtz kept a roster of superannuated or discredited clergymen, so there was always one available from 10 till 10, six days a week, to perform weddings at short notice. The fee was 10 shillings and sixpence, plus a few shillings more for a ring and witnesses. Now, by law, a woman younger than 21 needed her parents' permission to marry. But it was never hard to persuade the Holtz clergymen or the Holtz themselves, who usually acted as witnesses, that the bride was older than she looked. Nor was it an obstacle to marriage if one or both parties were so drunk they could barely stand up. Many a pair who had only just met would end their evening spree by getting spliced at Holtz and consummating their union in the old cemetery grounds opposite. Not surprising then that the name of Holtz Matrimonial Agency came up frequently in court, most infamously in connection with the serial killer, Frederick Deeming. Those who've listened to my Complete with Aspidistral walk will recall Deeming and his crimes. Suffice to say here that just a week after murdering one of his wives, Deeming wrote to Holtz Matrimonial Agency seeking an introduction to a young woman with a view to marriage. She must be good-looking, aged 18 to 20, and know something of housekeeping, he said in his letter. The Holtz lined up a few potential candidates or victims, but luckily for them, Deeming failed to keep his appointment. Usually, though, it was in cases of divorce or more often of bigamy that the Holtz were dragged into court. A jury that on one occasion was prepared to accept a bigamist's offence that under the influence of drink he forgot his marriage vows, nonetheless insisted that the judge record their indignation that such agencies as Holtz should be allowed to exist. The press frequently decried the evils of the agency, calling it a wholesale manufactory for illicit marriages. And worse, they said, there is a back door to Holtz that ought to be exposed. This seemed to hint at sex trafficking. Was there more to the marriage business than met the eye? Sinister doings in the cellar run by a deep state cabal? Luckily for the Holtz, this was a hundred years before Twitter. Now let's head back along Queen Street in the direction we came. When you get to Therry Street, cross, then walk down Therry Street. Hit pause now and rejoin me when you reach the corner of Elizabeth and Therry Streets. Stop six. Standing at the corner of Elizabeth and Therry Streets, not the McDonald's corner, the other one, look across Elizabeth Street to the glassy high-rise building on the corner diagonally opposite. Some of you will remember the Stork Hotel on that corner. There was a metal stork cavorting on the roof. That was the giveaway. The Stork Hotel began life in the 1850s as a landmark watering hole for travellers heading out of town or back again. Elizabeth Street then led, in fact it still leads, to the main Sydney Road, as well as to the Mount Alexander Road, which itself led to Mount Alexander or Castle Main and the goldfields beyond. Such was the fame of the Stork Hotel that the City Council's cattle yards and haymarket, 
which preceded the Victoria Market on this side of the street, would invariably be described as opposite the Stork Hotel. The odd-shaped parcel of land here between Therry and Victoria Streets, now occupied with shops and the market buildings, this wasn't put to permanent use until 1868 when the council first built its meat market here. Elizabeth Street all along here was scoured out by runoff that streamed downhill from the north and the west with gutters so deep they needed footbridges for crossing. Remember, Elizabeth Street followed the course of a natural gully draining into the Yarra. When the drainage was piped underground in the 1880s, the street here was just slightly realigned, adding a narrow triangle of land to the front of the market on which was built this row of two-storey shops and their verandas. At the same time, the meat market at the Victoria Street corner got its ornamental facade with those happy farm animals we saw earlier, oblivious to their fate. In the 2000s, when I knew it best, the Stork Hotel was known for its brain food. It used to host readings of Greek and Roman epics, theatrical adaptations of works by Proust, Camus and Dura, and served up moral dilemmas at regular Socratic dinners. In its early years, the Stork Hotel had hosted meetings of a short-lived outfit calling itself the Amateur Benevolent Comedian Club, which used to stage benefit performances to age thespians down on their luck. The Stork Hotel was acquired for redevelopment, naturally, and closed in 2007 after 150-plus years and an estimated 25 million pots of beer. Following its demolition, Archaeologists moved in for a post-mortem. Not that there was any mystery as to the cause of death. In amongst the bluestone foundations, they found bottles, coins, crockery fragments, pretty much what you'd expect. But they also discovered that the stork's original ground floor had been buried, demoted to a cellar, when the street level here was substantially raised at some point, probably when this was the main goldfields route. Upstairs... On the first floor. In the years before it closed, the stork still offered old style hotel accommodation bed, chair, bare boards, bathroom down the hall, only with the novelty of themed rooms. I stayed there once in the Kate Kelly room, named in honour of the Bushranger's sister. Folklore had it that members of the Kelly family had lodged here at the stork when they came to town in 1880 for Ned's execution at Melbourne Jail, not far from here. You've been drifting with me, Robin Anir. Thanks for joining me on this walk from Adrift in Melbourne, a three-part podcast series adapted from my book of the same name. You can find other podcasts in this series in your favourite podcast app or at SoundCloud or iTunes by searching for City of Melbourne Libraries. This podcast was recorded and produced by City of Melbourne Libraries.